for Pacifica Radio, October 2nd, 2022. I'm Scott Horton. This is Anti-War Radio. All right, y'all, welcome to the show. It is Anti-War Radio. I'm your host, Scott Horton. I'm the editorial director of Antiwar.com and editor of the new book, Hotter Than the Sun, Time to Abolish Nuclear Weapons. You can find my full interview archive, more than 5,700 of them now, going back to 2003, at scotthorton.org and at youtube.com slash scotthortonshow. And introducing today's guest, it's Antiwar.com's opinion editor, Kyle Anzalone. Welcome back to the show, Kyle. How are you doing? Doing great, Scott. Thanks for having me back on. I really appreciate having you here. And you wear a couple of hats over there at antiwar.com, doing a lot of the news reporting too. So let's start with the bad news. As of the time we're recording this, on Friday morning, the latest breaking news is that Putin has gone ahead and approved the annexation of these major Ukrainian regions, four of them, not just the Donbass, but also... Zaporozhia and Kherson as well. Is that right? Yeah. So that this is, I guess, been expected now for a couple of weeks since Russia announced they were holding the referendums. I don't think anybody really anticipated that Russia would hold a referendum and the the vote would turn out being no in any of these regions. Sure. I think all were at least the reported um, the, the two southern regions, uh, Kershaw and uh, Zaporizhia, uh, voted at like ninety percent levels, and then they reported the Donbass republics of Donetsk and Luhansk voting in like the 99% regions. I, my guess, Scott, is that, you know, if you hold a vote in the middle of wartime, the people who are living in the region occupied by the Russian forces are probably going to go out and vote to join Russia. Um, either they could be, of course, intimidated by reprisals, but my guess is that a lot of the people who would support joining Ukraine have already fled. And we have to remember that these regions have been getting shelled. I, I mean, for talking about the Donbass, we're really going back like eight, nine years now where, you know, they've been under fire from the Ukrainian forces. But even these southern regions have been held by Russia for the past seven months, which means it's been Ukraine bombing them. And so a sediment in that region has turned against Ukraine. I, I don't think we you know should really be surprised by that so yeah also there's uh, no reason really to presume the legitimacy of the counting or anything when it's in the middle of a war it's clearly essentially a stunt and a pretext for annexation regardless of the opinion of the people there even if the opinion there is super majority pro annexation you know sort of beside the point at this point something that russia is doing yeah, no, on the on uh, my show, Conflicts of Interest, I've uh, been calling it, it's like a military maneuver, but they just cloaked it in democracy, right? right. So Russia had a major offensive uh, go against them by the Ukrainian forces, and I, I think a couple of things happened. One, the people in these regions were worried that the Russian forces were going to withdraw, and if they withdraw, then the Ukrainian forces are going to come in and a lot of the people there are going to be labeled sympathizers with Moscow. And there's a lot of really bad actors within the Ukrainian armed forces and a lot of people who I think rightly feel reprisals. And so in one way, I think this was to ensure the people of these regions that the Russian forces weren't going anywhere. And 
Secondly, I think for Putin, it was a way to try to draw a red line to say, hey, you better not attack these regions because we're going to start calling them Russia uh, from now on. And this uh, it doesn't look like the Europeans or the Ukrainians are going to bat down on any of this and will attack these regions. So, uh, you know, it's going to be an excuse for the Kremlin to escalate this war even further. Yeah, I mean, people need to really understand the context here. When he's saying we'll do anything to defend Russian territory, including use nuclear weapons, and not necessarily, but up to and including nuclear weapons. Oh, and by the way, these four major regions are all now part of Russia again. When right. he knows good and well that Ukraine and NATO and America's position will be, no, it's not either. It's occupied Ukrainian territory is all it is. And they're going to continue attacking it on that basis. So that's a hell of a stunt. If he thought it was going to get the Americans to back down or something like that, that's wrong. If it's a pretext for a massive escalation, I don't think he needed it. But it's, you know, maybe for internal Russian politics, he needed to set it up this way for some reason or something like that. But it puts the war in a whole new and terrible context with this, uh, you know, be like if in Iraq War II, and America's fighting Muqtada al-Sadr, and then Iran annexes Najaf, right when we're fighting in Najaf. Now we're fighting against Iran, when before we were just fighting against their proxies in Iraq. Something like that. Not a perfect analogy, but it's, politically speaking, he's setting us up for a major escalation of the conflict here, not just from the Russian side, but I'm afraid from the NATO side too, it sounds like, Kyle. Yeah, no, I really agree because, you know, we've seen uh, with the Crimean Peninsula, which is going to essentially be in the same status, although at least with that uh, annexation, there is a referendum that happened that wasn't during wartime. That gives a little bit more legitimacy to that. But, you know, it, it's going to essentially be in the same status as these other four regions, which is clear, territory claimed by Moscow that's not going to be recognized by certainly anyone in the West, the European Union, any NATO members, any American allies. And uh, we, we've seen the, that the U.S. says, yes, Kiev, you could go ahead and attack and try to take back Crimea. Zelensky, the, the president of Ukraine, keeps saying that our forces are going to take back Crimea. And, uh, you know, if we look at the reaction to this, you know, this is something that's uh, in the now updated article on antiwar.com today, uh, Scott, is immediately after the, the signing that where Putin this morning during a ceremony signed it and made all this official, the European Union released a statement saying that the annexation was a leak. Uh, legal, but more importantly, uh, the Zelensky said that Ukraine would accelerate its application to become a NATO, uh, a member of NATO, and made the case that really at this point Kiev is already a de facto member of the alliance, and so <laughs> we're we're talking about you know war between NATO and Ukraine, uh, our Russia now much more officially on Ukrainian soil here. This is uh, this is getting very serious and, and you know very very uh, intense escalations coming here, Scott. Man, talk about the perils of empire there when the satellites start saying things like that. Who's in charge of telling Zelensky to not say that? You know, I don't know. Maybe nobody. It's Anti-War Radio. I'm talking with Kyle Anzalone from AntiWar.com about the crisis, the horrible war in Ukraine, and what it all means. Now, 
Talk to me about the situation in Donetsk right now, because at least according to Jonathan Landay in Reuters this morning, the Ukrainians are making major headway continuously still in the Donbass now, where they had already taken back, I guess, the northern half of Luhansk. And now they're moving, and I'm not a master of the map of all those villages and towns and cities in, in eastern Ukraine, but apparently they're moving on a major portion of Donetsk now and claim to have the Russians surrounded. Yeah, so I I guess myself and then Dave DeCamp, the news editor at antiwar.com, haven't been doing a lot of like the battlefield uh, because you know a lot of times offensives happen, but then they're repelled within the days or weeks after. But seeing the success that Ukraine has in recent offensives, I guess is you know worth paying a little bit more attention to this, and especially it being in a region that Russia is now saying is in Russian territory. Uh, seems pretty serious, but uh, I, I guess I'll see how this plays out over the next couple of days uh, if Ukraine's able to actually take and hold this territory, or if you know Russia is just leaving leading some Ukrainian soldiers into a trap. They take one town and then instantly gets taken back, which happens with, with some frequency here. Yeah. Yeah, I had read a thing that said that the Ukrainians were taking major casualties for essentially what amount to like PR stunts there, where maybe they move forward and take some territory, but they're losing so many men compared to the Russian losses in order to do so that it makes sense, I guess, in the short term to say to NATO, see... You know, give us more weapons, it's working. But at the same time, they're really cutting deep into their bench as far as who they have left to fight. Although, on the other hand, there's a lot of reports about all the conscription efforts and calling up the reserves and everything in Russia being quite chaotic and massive anti-war protests and all this kind of thing. So, uh, what do you know about that? Are you following that very closely about the... Uh, Putin's calling up of 300,000 reserves and expanding conscription and all this stuff and how it's going. Yeah, so it, it's always hard to say because, you know, we're, we're getting the one angle from the Kremlin and they're saying they're calling up 300,000. Who knows if they can call up that many? I assume in a, a country the size of Russia, they probably won't have trouble getting that many, enlisting that many men. But who, like, they could be going for a lot more. And then on the other side, it's really the Western press that's highlighting. Uh, the like, you know, anti-war protests and saying, oh, look, all these people are trying to flee Russia. Now they're obviously they do have some video evidence and some evidence here that there are definitely some men trying to get out of Russia before they get conscripted into this war. Uh, but I'm not quite sure if it's as extensive as it's being portrayed in the Western press. There has been some coverage on it uh, from RT. So, it, you know, it, it is definitely going on. There are anti-war protests. Uh, there is crackdown from the Russian authorities on those protests. And there are people trying to get out of Russia, either to the Central Asian countries or potentially into some European countries. And then there's a lot of debate going on within the European Union, whether to welcome these people as essentially refugees or to say, like, you, you know, they can't come in because there's some kind of security threat to Europe. And, and there, there's kind of a balance uh, and an argument going on there with it the Europe, European Union on how they're they're going to treat and handle uh, the, the Russians trying to get out to, to avoid being conscripted into the war. 
And I've also seen some people, Scott, and I should mention this too, within Russia who are very much responding to this as Americans responded to the early Iraq war and things like that, the rally around the flag. I've seen some women on the street saying real men decide to fight and there are groups of young men going out, getting drunk and all decided to go enlist and things like that too. So, uh, you know, it, it isn't just the one way. It's not that all Russians hate this thing and, and that is the way it's being portrayed in much of the Western press. Yeah. You know, it's funny because the propaganda, of course, is that the Russians want to recreate the entire Soviet Union or at least the old Russian Empire, and they're a threat to the Baltics and Poland next and all this. But at the same time, the narrative is, and seemingly true, they're having their problems. They essentially have a great artillery force or something, but they have no kind of armored force that would be required to conquer any NATO country even the Baltic states, probably. It sort of looks like they got way ahead of themselves in overestimating their capabilities here and had to kind of retrench and change the tactics and strategy of their war to just this full-on artillery assault. But I don't know enough about battlefield strategy and tactics and so forth, but it seems like that only cuts it in some circumstances, but not all. And the Ukrainians have been able, with obviously American coordination... They seem to have been able to maneuver around and score quite a few successes against the Russians, even though they have a much larger force they have not deployed yet. I guess the question is, you know, whether they're now going to, you know, double or triple their number of forces in the country, because I believe so far they've only sent in like 120,000 out of their 400,000 man army, right? Yeah, so I think there's a few general points to be made on, on the whole strategy here. It's very hard to argue that this war has gone the way that, you know, the Kremlin has anticipated. And if nothing else, the Kharkiv offensive seems to to really prove that be, because, you know, the Russian forces really were forced, forced out of that. And even if there was some strategy in that retreat, uh, it, it definitely seems to be the case that, you know, they had to give back Ukrainian territory that they held. Whether, you know, early in the war, the offensive towards Kiev was really aimed at taking the capital, really aimed at regime change in Kiev, or if it was to draw forces out of other areas of the country, you know, that all, all could be debated at the strategy level. Uh, a lot of the people who would maybe argue that Putin has de decided to engage in a very, um, you know, limited war here, he's not carrying out carpet bombing. I mean, you, you know, it's really hard to imagine that Zelensky would be able to remain in Ki uh, Kiev, uh, take photos for Vogue, walk around on the streets in the middle of this war. Uh, I mean, that's pretty shocking. If, you know, that Zelensky's been able to do this does seem to indicate that, you know, Russia has waged a somewhat limited war here. Another thing I, I really don't think Putin and the Kremlin anticipated is the level of military assistance the West has given Ukraine. Uh, we're, they've essentially matched the Russian military budget uh, for this war. And so, uh, you know, everybody's making it sound like the plucky Ukrainians are fighting back against uh, the Russians. Well, you know, Ukraine's a smaller state than Russia, but the Ukrainians have uh, uh, tens of billions of dollars of military equipment, you know, from the most, uh, you know, advanced stockpiles in the wor world. Now, one thing that I, I read in, uh, I think it was CNBC this week, Scott, was there's a real 
issue coming up here where all the Western countries have essentially given away all of their additional uh, stockpiles to Ukraine at this point. Uh, and the number of you know, munitions required for Ukraine to continue waging the the battle at the rate they have been, it far exceeds what the West is able to produce. And so I think uh, the U.S. only produces about 30,000, uh, 155 millimeter artillery rounds a year. And Ukraine is going through that in two weeks. I, I think partly this is being promoted, of course, to benefit the military industrial complex who uh, sees like just dollar signs on this war, right? They're going to be able to ramp up production. Uh, it's going to take, you know, six, at least six months for a lot of these weapon systems to increase production, but they're talking actually about two years, three years for a lot of these systems uh, before they're even able to churn out more uh, armaments than they already are. And so they're, they're getting huge investment from the White House and from all these other uh, countries to, to produce more and more weapons for this war. But at the same time, there probably is a real logistics crunch here that's going to have to be examined when there isn't enough you know, munitions being produced to, to, to continue to arm the Ukrainians uh, with the weapons that we, we currently have been. I, I think the same case for the HIMAR munitions that we've been sending Ukraine. The stockpiles are getting pretty low, and the Pentagon is saying, well, we're not going to send any more of our actual weapons to Ukraine because that could put us in jeopardy, say we had to fight a war against any other countries. So, you know, I, I'm not sure how they're planning on making up the immediate gap here. Well, folks, sad to say, they lied us into war. All of them. World War I, World War II, Korea, Vietnam, Iraq War I, Serbia, Afghanistan, Iraq War II, Libya, Syria, Yemen. All of them. But now you can get the ebook, All the War Lies, by me for free. Just sign up for the email list at the bottom of the page at scotthorton.org or go to scotthorton.org slash subscribe. Get All the War Lies by me for free. And then you'll never have to believe them again. Hey, y'all, they've got great deals on weed at thehempspot.com. The Hemp Spot specializes in Delta 8 tetrahydrocannabinol instead of Delta 9. So they can send it straight to you anywhere in America. Recently, a friend moved and didn't have a guy in his new town. But then he heard about thehempspot.com on my show and was saved figuratively and literally. Because if you use the promo code Scott, you get 15% off every order and free shipping on any order over $100. Legal jams, bud, gummies, and the rest in your state. TheHempSpot.com. Spell V-T-H-C. You guys, my friend Mike Swanson has written such a great revisionist take on the early history of the post-World War II national security state and military-industrial complex in the Truman, Eisenhower, and Kennedy years. It's called The War State. I have to say... It's the most convincing case I've read that Kennedy had truly decided to end the Cold War before he was killed. In any case, I know you'll love it. The War State by Mike Swanson. Well, I'll never forget, and people can read this in Harper's Magazine, their Washington editor, the great Andrew Coburn, wrote about how he had a source at this kind of corporate breakfast, I think it was, in Crystal City, right outside of Washington, D.C., home of all the Pentagon and its contractors and all of these guys. And it was all weapons firms, essentially, at this corporate breakfast they were having. And the news broke. The Russians are seizing Crimea in 2014. And they all were whooping and laughing and cheering. 
and clinking their orange juice glasses, I guess, and celebrating that. Man, forget the Middle East. The Cold War with the Russians again. It's on. Big ticket items. Subs and planes and ships. Long-range bombers. Hypersonic missiles. Oh, man, we're in the money. And they're laughing all the way to the bank. America's simply been captured by the arms industries. That's it. And they're threatening to get us all killed right now. It sure looks like to me. They'll make a buck today and be vapor with the rest of us tomorrow. Yeah, uh, and if anybody thinks that doesn't sound believable, I, Matt Ho told me on uh, my show, and he's the great whistleblower and uh, running for Senate now, but he he told me that uh, after the Libyan war started, he was at some dinner with all the fancy pants people like John McCain, and uh, you know the, the war started and they were all just giddy about it, you know, all just happy because they knew they were going to make so much more money and were so excited about it. And it's just incredible to see how far that they'll push things and, and how successful that they can be in forging their consensus as well. Give people a couple of scare stories. You know, you're too young to remember, Kyle, but 20 years ago today, they were saying, you're pro-Saddam Hussein. How come you got Saddam Hussein's talking points, Mr. Saddam Hussein's side taker? And that worked on people. As absolutely ridiculous as that sounds. There's no more Putin partisans in America than there ever were Saddam Hussein partisans in America. No one ever was taking their side of the story. It's simply the truth versus the lie, that's all. The danger that we're being put in unnecessarily. And, of course, Saddam Hussein couldn't hit back, and they knew it. That's why they were targeting him. Not because he was a threat, because they knew he wasn't. Iraq is doable, said Deputy Secretary of Defense Paul Wolfowitz. Right? Russia's not doable. Russia can erase every single city in the middle part of this continent in one afternoon, can kill all of us. But we act like, yeah, what are you going to do about it, Saddam? At the same time, they say that Putin is the most dangerous psychopath on the planet since Saddam. Only we know he's got 6,000 H-bombs. But anyway. Yeah, well... um, I do remember being a kid, Scott, and people, you know, saying, what are you with the terrorists? Anytime anybody questioned the narrative. Uh, But one more story on this that Dave DeCamp wrote at uh, Antiwar.com this week, just how blatant they are. So one of the things that the the White House is celebrating and telling the military industrial complex they'll really be able to sell uh, cash in on here is there's a lot of NATO member states that still use Russian or Soviet era weapons because they were former, you know, USSR states or members of the Warsaw Pact until, you know, 1990. And they're saying that with the sanctions on Russia, there's no way that any of these countries will be able to buy anything to, you know, repair or replace or rearm their systems. So now, you know, Poland and and all these other Baltic and former USSR and Warsaw Pact states, Scott, they all have to come to the U.S. and get their weapons from the American arms makers now. They got to replace all of their Soviet era tanks and and artillery systems and planes, uh, which they, you know, most of these militaries are still all the Soviet era systems. And so I'm sure they see just huge dollar signs and giant money beds rolling into Washington for all this in the next couple of years. Uh, You know, it certainly doesn't trickle down to the, the American people. You know, it's not really going to help your town or whatever if 
uh, Lockheed opens up a factory because they're only going to pay people like $30,000 a year. You're better off at this point working at Taco Bell or something. So uh, it's not really a good deal for you, but it's a good deal for Washington. Yeah, totally out of control. All right, now tell me about what happened to the Nord Stream pipelines, everything you know, and at least report to me all the different speculations. I know you don't know. Yeah. So we, we don't know what happened. And this is really one of the, the harder things to, to try to puzzle together for, for me, Scott. But we, we do know that there's, I think, four leads now, four confirmed leads, and they had detected a few explosions. And it did hit both pipelines about the same time. And so that means that, you know, the, this being some kind of natural cause seems almost impossible. Uh, I, I don't know. I'm not like a geologist. I don't construct pipelines. I'm not an engineer. So maybe there's something that I'm not understanding here, but everything I've read fully suggests and everybody from the Europeans, the Americans, even the Russians are saying that this was an act of sabotage. So uh, I'm guessing that somebody did drop some ordinance in, in the water or set ordinance in some way to cause explosions and attempt to, I guess, permanently turn off these two pipelines. Uh, both pipelines were pressurized with gas. And so this is important, right? You can't just leave a pipeline empty. I think you really should have something going through it at all times. But at the very least, there has to be like whatever substance you're planning on pumping through it down there uh, for the for it to maintain all of its in, in structural integrity and everything like that so when these explosions went off you know we're now getting pictures of these like you know huge areas of gas being released uh, a lot of people are pointing to the white house here because of comments made by joe biden and victoria newland about you know if russia went to war then these pipelines wouldn't ever function again I'm really skeptical that the White House would resort to blowing up the pipeline, Scott. Uh, you know, for years and years, we have seen the preferred method uh, from Washington is to just use sanctions. And as far as I could tell, there's no real risk that the Europeans aren't going to go along with the American sanctions at this point, especially key countries like Germany, where the Nord Stream pipelines run to. So... I would guess the White House would have chosen sanctions. I mean, these are civilian infrastructure. Also, it's an environmental disaster. And so it just seems to me that there's too many strikes against it for this to be something that was at least approved by the White House. Now, maybe the CIA is out of control or, or uh, you know, the European command is completely out of control and something wild happened there. But I'm not quite sure that this was approved in the Oval Office. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, my suspicion is that it was the Americans or NATO forces. I don't see the mileage in it for the Russians when they want to turn it back on. It's already capped at the western end. The Russians are the ones trying to sell it. The Germans are the ones refusing to buy it. And as you're saying there, the Germans are well in hand from the American point of view. They're not going back to the Nord Stream 2, certainly not short of any grand deal with Putin now. So, yeah, I really don't have a reason to point the finger at, at the Kremlin either. The only thing I could think of is that, you know, Putin would benefit by spiking gas prices again. And so, you know, maybe it was an attempt to create, uh, increase energy prices, but no energy was going through the pipelines at the time anyway. So I don't think in, in as far as I've seen in the markets, it doesn't seem to have made that big of a deal. Mm -hmm. And so I really don't see any you know, benefit 
from yeah. from Russia's point of view either. So I'm kind of baffled on how this happened and why. Initially, I really polls. assumed it was uh, yeah, yeah. It could have been the polls, yeah. right? It could have been an independent actor in in uh, Europe with their own agenda. But, yeah, absolutely. Uh, anyway, I don't want to spend too much time on uh, things that we can only speculate about, but at least it's important to know, you know, what's happening there. And then so. The Senate has approved another $16 billion in Ukraine aid. But the point I wanted to ask you about was not just the $50 billion there and the $16 billion here, but the announcement that they make of every little bit of millions of dollars of equipment that they give in the meantime, you know, under that $50 billion, as they parse it out, they announce every little bit of it. And I wonder whether they ever talk about that as being a deliberate kind of provocation to just rub it in the Russians' face that it is us and not the Ukrainians that are fighting them and are giving them such a hard time and that kind of thing. Or is there a point behind that? Or they're just absolutely that careless about how emotional they make their adversaries here? So I, I thought it, I I assumed it was more for U.S. domestic consumption here because what's happening is Congress is authorizing like big bulk money that the White House could kind of use for whatever it wants. And so a lot of the money has gone into the presidential drawdown authority, which is a slush fund that lets the, the president as commander in chief send weapons from U.S. stockpiles wherever he wants them to go. And so you know, Congress has authorized more money for that fund, and then the president has sent American weapons to Ukraine and is now buying more weapons to replace the ones they sold. They've also been giving a lot of aid to the Eastern European states in exchange for those countries sending weapons to Ukraine. We're either sending them new American weapons or giving them different kinds of funds and money. And so I think a lot of it is just having a new package every week that's like near or at a billion dollars. I think to it sounds like we're doing a lot to the American people. And I think that's the perception that the White House wants to give right now. Uh, and then also, I think it's kind of just how it's worked, because every couple of weeks, the Ukrainians, oh, now we need more ammunition for the high Mars. Now we need more uh, howitzers. Now we need uh, tanks, or now we need mine clearing equipment. So we've actually seen that Prior to the invasion of Kharkiv, the U.S. gave Ukraine a lot of equipment that would be needed if they recaptured territory. And, and I think part of it is just strategic, too, that we're giving the aid in these chunks because, you know, the Pentagon's looking and talking with Kiev and they're saying, OK, so for the month of October, we went all this. And then they approve a $1.2 billion transfer to Ukraine with, you know, a month's worth of ammunition, it seems. And then, uh, you know, new new HIMARS systems this time. I think they doubled the number of HIMARS. And each time, too, it seems like they try to ratchet up the level just a little bit on how provocative the weapon systems are, where, you know, at first they're more uh, small arms or things like that. And now in the next two months, we're sending them advanced air defense systems. The HIMARS were a big uh, escalation and all the other equipment, the, the drones and things like that, anti-radar systems. Yeah. All right. I'm sorry we're all out of time for the bad news, but you guys can find all of it at antiwar.com where Kyle Anzalone is the opinion editor. Thank you so much for your time again, Kyle. Thank you, Scott. All right, you guys. And that has been Anti-War Radio for this morning. I'm your host, Scott Horton. Find all the interview archives at scotthorton.org. And I'm here every Sunday morning 
from 9 to 9.30 on KPFK, 90.7 FM in LA. See you next week.